0: Hello and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend Richard Epstein of the Hoover Institution and New York University. Richard, how are you?
1: Also of the University of Chicago, where I am now sitting. I'm fine, thank you.
0: Uh, Richard, you're like Johnny Cash. You've been everywhere, man. That's Uh, right.
1: (laughs) I'm now sitting around trying to figure out how to write my final examination on financial regulation, so that should be the subject of this talk.
0: No, that's not the subject of this time. Ah, thank God. Thank God. <laughs> no, but I do want to talk about something else you've written recently. Uh, you have a post up at Hoover's Defining Ideas blog earlier this week titled In Defense of Abortions Messy Status Quo. And you're writing about the, the recent laws that were passed by the states of Georgia and Alabama. Um, but before we get to the substance, I want to cut to the very end of your essay, Richard. I was really struck by this. Just humor me while I quote this back at you. You said, quote, I have no doubt that Roe is wrong, Roe v. Wade, is wrong as a matter of constitutional principle, and yet with evident uneasiness, I think that it would be a mistake for the court to rise to the bait in the Alabama case. Socially, the messy status quo may prove more durable than either of the two extreme legal positions. I read that, Richard, and I was struck because if I know one thing about you, it's that you're no shrinking violet and you tend to uh, take a position and, and stick to it uh, boldly. And so I was struck by the tone of the essay and the suggestion that here with uneasiness, it's a, a constitutional issue where we need to to uh, stick with a messy status quo. So could you just tell us a little bit about how you're approaching the issue right now?
1: Sure. I mean, they're two Richard Epsteins, and they have very different views. Uh, one of them is the guy who's the strong textualist, and what I mean by that is not somebody who only looks at text, but looks at text and construes it in light of the standard principles of interpretation that were developed fully in Roman times and carried over into medieval times and were understood and accepted by people like James Madison. And this means that you always start with the text, you try to figure out what its key terms mean, and then when you're done with that particular job, you realize that these texts are invitations to answer other kinds of questions which they never discussed particularly. And with constitutional law, there are three questions that always Come up in one form or another. One is the question of circumvention. Uh, You have a text which prohibits or bans something. Can you tax it to death even though taxes are not covered? And almost everybody agrees that if you find a close substitute to the prohibition, you have to close that hole. Otherwise, the Constitution becomes too porous. And so that expands the protection. Then what happens is you have to worry about whether or not they're justifications for doing what you want to do. So one of my constant disagreements with Nino Scalia is he only thought in terms of denials, never in terms of justification. So if you want to take a gun from somebody who's about to kill somebody else, do you have to pay them just compensation? I think the answer is no. And we've developed this whole implied body of law called the police power, which indicate the cases when the state can use its police power um, to stop people in the exercise of their individual liberties. And then the third question is, when it turns out that you think there's a constitutional right, there's a huge choice over what the particular remedies are going to be. And you have to figure out all of that stuff as well. So if you take this particular framework, um, you have to remember that I'm a Lochner guy in the sense that I think that liberty of contract is something which deserves some degree of constitutional protection. And Lochner itself was about the police power. Was this a health and safety regulation? There was a big dispute about that, and I thought in the end that Peckham was right. He said you cannot define the police power so broadly uh, that essentially it eviscerates every constitutional guarantee, and he essentially said you've got to be very careful about paternalism, and you have to be very, very careful about anti-competitive rationales masquerading as police powers, and so his particular view was you struck the statute down. Get to Roe. The prima facie case is certainly a liberty, a refreshment on the liberty of a woman, but unfortunately the woman in this case is quite literally a tied good. There's a woman and there's this other thing there known as the fetus in one form or another, maybe an embryo, maybe um, uh, some other more advanced state. And what you have to do there is you say, well, can you decide to limit the freedom of the mother in order to protect uh, the position of the offspring under the health and safety provisions of the police power. And I said, if Lochner is right, you have to do the same analysis, and that the interest of the unborn child, in quotation marks, is strong enough to justify some degree of state control, and that if you try to figure out the question, as Phil Curlin put it to me many, many years ago, when as a person – it's very difficult to find the time after conception that is as neat a break as is conception in terms of the genetic complement defining the full person. And so you tend to move back very, very early, which makes you uncomfortable, but it's difficult to avoid. When you go forward, it's now 47 years later, and people have essentially came to the following accommodation: One, most people think that there's much more moral difficulty in abortion than they did oddly enough, perhaps 47 years ago. Two. Most people, in part because of the women's movement, but not only because of that, tend to believe uh, that abortion should be legal, um, even if it turns out that there's some real moral questions associated with it. And then three, if you actually look at the numbers, the number of women who get abortions is going sharply down, in part because of improved conception. And in, contraception, and in part because of the general public sentiments on this issue about the difficulties of the arrangement. I think that's a reasonably stable position. And I also think that the three moral heads that people generally accept uh, cases of rape, incest, and I would add defective children being aborted before birth if this is where we tend to be, I don't think you want to change a political system to take a rule which is much too strict instead of one that's a little bit too lax, when in fact in the middle we're probably closer to what is the uh, sort of correct situation. And generally speaking, when you have a status quo, I have a phrase in my book, Classical Liberal Constitution, called the prescriptive constitution, which means there are certain practices which by virtue of long use start as wrongs and end up as right. There are many things like that in the constitution. Article one courts, an oxymoron, a perfect example of it. And when you start to deal with that, I think it's very dangerous to take a political system which is in fragile equilibrium and try to push it back to a position where it's never been before. And so that's why I wrote that last sentence. I thought long and hard because I wrote about it. And the point about prescription is it's an easy doctrine. And so it's not as though I'm going to go screaming from the top of the mountaintops on this, but that's in general the way I think about this.
0: Yeah, I was really struck, Richard, by by your analysis all the way leading up to that, and you made a couple of good points. I mean, you made a lot of good points. A couple jumped out at me. One, this question about where to draw the line. Right? You said, well, really the there seem to be two poles. Either there's no line at all or there's a line at the moment of personhood, which is to say the moment of conception. And you point out that once there's conception, it, it's the same person, the same genetic uh, you know, makeup from there on out. And everything after that is basically a prudential line. And so I look at something, and again, we're talking about two recent bills, one by Georgia that was passed in late March called the Fetal Heartbeat Bill, largely bans abortion after detected heartbeat, which is to say about 20 weeks into the pregnancy. The more recent one, uh, perhaps the more aggressive one, I suppose, by Alabama called the Human Life Protection Act is much even closer to a categorical ban on abortion with only um, exceptions for fetal uh, lethal anomalies or where there's a serious health risk to a pregnant woman and another limited exception, no exception for rape or incest. So very two very um, aggressive mm-hmm. regulations or prohibitions of abortion. Georgia phrases it in terms of a detectable fetal heartbeat. In, in a way of looking at it, I suppose, that's almost a, a prudential compromise of sorts, right? They could have gone even further yep. and said no abortion after conception, but no, I think that the the contrast between Georgia and Alabama shows that that there's a number of places you can draw this line. Each one more controversial than another, perhaps. Um, but I was I'm struck by this, and I'm struck by the arguments surrounding personhood. I mean, make no mistake about it. I'm I'm extremely pro-life. Um, I hope that someday uh, abortion, you know, largely ceases to exist. You know, through the voluntary actions of of people, and I think through through appropriate um, regulation. I'm not sure what I think of the Alabama and Georgia bills yet, but I'd like to see a future where abortion goes away. I'm not sure that that there's a solution or an appropriate solution in the courts right now. But I'm struck by the how much of my sides of the my side of the debate is hinged on the idea of personhood, when in fact there's no shortage of doctrines in law where it's lawful for one person to kill another person, right? Whether it's not just in self-defense, but in some matters of necessity, right? And other elsewhere, you can have the intentional Oh,
1: challenge. Awfully narrow under necessity. I don't think homicide is ever justified by necessity.
0: Well, what if, uh, what if the two? The, the classic example. I'm forgetting the little case from my law school days. Uh, but, yeah, but two
1: okay. people,
0: right? Two people in a boat. Uh, two 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 people shipwrecked or, or on a boat. Only one of them is going to be able to to perhaps survive. At what point can one of them kill the other to preserve him or herself?
1: um well in that case the the it was the crown case from the eighteen eighties what happened is the conviction was upheld and then the pardon was issued ah uh, okay. See, I mean that – and most people thought that there was some sense to that particular solution that if you try to introduce necessity into the criminal law system, there are too many cases in which it's going to be done. Better to run the conviction and then if you could persuade an independent political body about the necessity of that at that particular point that uh, you can intervene. A necessity has always been perfectly permissible for abridging property rights. Um, and so the famous case is you're out there in the middle of a storm, and the only way you could save your life is to stop at somebody else's dock, um, and you could tie up, and you have to pay damages afterwards. But if the man should come along and said, "It's my dock, you need to pay me a million dollars. I'm going to cast you out to sea," you're entitled to beat him up.
0: Yeah, uh, but he, I also even set that aside. Even in the case of say self-defense, right? That is yeah. that that is itself an example of lawful homicide. I wouldn't analogize it to pregnancy because um, first of all, the, the, you know, in only rare cases mm-hmm. is the unborn baby putting the mother in uh, in, in physical, you know, mm-hmm. in, in harm of lo- threat of life. Um, and, uh, you know, you can't ascribe any sort of mm-hmm. um, moral culpability to the unborn baby. Um, so I, I wouldn't draw an, a, a sort of an analogy, but it's an example where there is. Based on the the particular circumstances of that aspect of human behavior, there is uh, an exception to the usual prohibition on homicide. I think one of the things that your your article really deals with very with great nuance. I think is the fact that the the pregnancy is a relationship uh, between two people, unlike anything else in the law, mm-hmm. um, where one person is as you said literally tied to another. I like how you distinguish it. Oftentimes, people raise this 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 hypothetical of somebody being forcibly connected to, to a violinist violin. for oh, for Christ. nine months and I think you point out that that's ridiculous this is not it's it's completely um dissimilar especially when pregnancy is a totally natural it's one of the most natural um aspects of the human condition um
1: there's you nothing through it on one end at least
0: that's right that's right um and we're grateful to those who were who, who were on the other end of it um but 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 so the point is that this is this is an an area of human life of the human condition utterly unlike anything else, and so I think analogies ultimately break down and it becomes a very delicate choice of striking a balance between rights between other interests and I think it 's one where you can 't just simply reduce it down to a line like um, if it 's a person. You know, he can't be killed, he can't be killed, or, you know, my body, my choice. It's obviously much, much more complicated than this. But like you, I'm totally unsatisfied with the court's analysis in Roe um, and the court's analysis in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. I think it's strange credulity to suggest that the, the 14th Amendment, as it's originally understood, um, contains such a broad right to abortion. When so have- I'm left. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Uh, essentially every state at the time either by common law rule or by statute thought abortion was something to be controlled i do refer to in that paper the case of rex v. born um in england in from 1936 and, or 39 rather and, and you see there you know they're really struggling with the case struggling with the case uh, where a very distinguished physician recommends that an abortion be given in hospital so a woman who's been made Um, pregnant by a violent rape. And you're not quite sure whether it's protection of the mother or whether it's resentment of the rape and so forth. That was the state of the debate before Roe v. Wade and it completely transformed it. And and that was what was so strange. It was completely discontinuous. There was no buildup to this. Um, This is not like, for example, Brown v. Board of Education where the drumbeats were uh, coming for the last 15 years or so. It's not even like, for example, a where we knew what was happening on gay rights and gay matters marriage for a long time. This was from nothing to everything. And what happens is the issue is too hard for it to gain any kind of legitimacy. And so after Obergefell, there are some people who still think the decision is wrong, but massive resistance is not in the cards. There will never be a case when you start to deal with an issue like Roe uh, where this thing will be quiescent. So one of the things, if you remember, that I mentioned in the paper was that there were several people, prominent people, who start announcing there is no such thing as an abortion because it isn't a person until it's born. And what they do is they simply try to use a linguistic trick in order to avoid a very, very serious issue, and it's that kind of position that drives me crazy, is that the most emphatic defenses come for the least defensible positions. That's
0: right, and I think that um, you just look around and you look at the way we use words in just the ordinary sense of things. Um, I saw somebody remark online in commentary to, to, about these bills. When, when a, a woman starts to show up pregnancy, nobody says she has a fetal bump, right? She says, I have a baby bump. Um, You think of of so many people who have lost pregnancies um, who I think would be offended profoundly the idea that all they lost was a clump of cells. Um, We we celebrate uh, when people uh, become pregnant, at least when they're happy about it. Um, It -hmm. becomes – I think that the the, the proponents of the abortion rights, like you said, have really tried to structure a legal argument – that presumes away just basic human reactions to one of the most fundamental human events and human relationships in human life. so we get then back to this question of what happens if you believe that, that Roe and Casey are not faithful applications of the Constitution's original meaning. So just, just to pin you down on, on the last point then, Richard, um, are you saying that for now it's best for all parties to just leave the case law alone, or is there sort of even just a marginal improvement on where we currently are that would be legally and politically justifiable?
1: I'm sure there must be some marginal improvements that can be made, but these bills aren't it. These are efforts basically to force the Supreme Court to take it. My hope actually is that everybody in the lower courts knows that these bills are flatly unconstitutional as constructed, uh, that they all get struck down. There's no conflict between the circuit and the Supreme Court decides not to take it. I just don't think there's any gain in taking it, even to reaffirm Roe v. Wade, because the interim uncertainty and the speculation about what is Justice Roberts, Justice of course, it's just Kavanaugh going to do on all of these things um, will create an awful amount of uneasiness. Let me give you a comparison. I'm not in favor of black reparations. I've written about this subject 10, 12 years ago. Even putting this thing on the agenda as a matter of political discussion creates such an enormous amount of social divisions between folks who are genuinely offended about being asked to pay for things when they themselves have suffered from many massive forms of discrimination and so forth. That's not a debate that we really need to have. What you have to do is to be looking forward on something like this. So I reject the position which says that there's no harm in asking. Um, I think certain times when people come back with big kind of public issues and we should get these uncomfortable debates, it does make it much harder for us to concentrate on the incremental areas, as you said, where we can have reform. You want to have tax reform? By all means, we should debate progressivity, but we should not be putting this into the place where all of a sudden we think an annual wealth tax – which is best I can tell be limited only by 100% of wealth, um, is on the table. We do not want to have judicial challenges that go absolutely so far out of the mainstream uh, that it turns out we can't pay our attention to the issues that are subject to more immediate solutions.
0: It'll be interesting to see how the litigation plays out on this. Um, yes. know, just a, couple, a year or two ago, um, my home state, the state of Iowa, passed some new regulations Regarding abortion and the groups that challenged it, I think it was ACLU and Planned Parenthood. They didn't file in federal court. They filed in state court. They didn't invoke the U.S. Constitution; they invoked the state constitution, and in so doing, were able to litigate the case and, and ultimately prevail without risking the case reaching the U.S. Supreme Court. I kind of I, I took that as a sign of the times that, with the shift in personnel at the Supreme Court, and now especially after uh, Kennedy's departure and his replacement by Kavanaugh, you'd see progressive groups trying to defend a lot of these doctrines, shifting a lot of their energy away from federal courts and the federal constitution and towards state courts and the state constitution, or at least bringing the case where possible in state courts and emphasizing the state claims in the hopes that they could get their courts to construe the state constitutions more broadly and not risk this going up to Chief Justice John Roberts. Yes, I mean – I think so. I think some of the early cases, I think challenging – I think the the Georgia one has already been challenged, um, I believe, in in federal court. There was a similar one in another state – forgive me, it might be Kentucky – that was challenged in federal court. But it will be interesting to see where these actually go. It's possible that the shift in personnel at the Supreme Court will actually trigger a countervailing move in, in emphasis by the left away from federal courts and towards the state court and state constitutions. Um, but we shall see. I guess we won't know until the cases start getting filed. This, this
1: is not a new maneuver. Let me mention right. two cases which relied on state constitutions, both of which I think turned out to be disasters. One of them is a case called Serrano and Priest where they required statewide equalization of funding across various districts in California, uh, which led to a real decline in overall level of education. Generally speaking, if you try to level things through transfer payments, you can only level down, you can't trans level up, and that's what's happened in California. And the other was this very exotic theory that somehow there a Blackstonian constitution, which talks about sacred individual and inalienable rights, requires you to have a massive Mount Laurel zoning type situation, which resulted in a straight right struggle, which 40 years after it happened, is still going strong. I mean, it, it, the state of the federal constitution is obviously two avenues, and people who want to have major changes which are not going to be stopped by the federal government will try on the state constitution. Sometimes those state claims are very sensible. Sometimes those state claims are very, very ritzy. um, Jeff Sutton is, I think, the leader in this particular movement. I did write a semi-response to him called the double-edged sword of state constitutionalism because the downside is every bit as big as the upside. And yes, we will start to see that. But here, of course, you don't have that particular option. Uh, Because there's no way that you could go to a state court in order to strike down uh, the various um, liberals or impose new restrictions on abortion because the federal constitution stands in your particular way. Uh, So the only time this works is where the federal constitution is silent, as it is, for example, on equal protection. Then you could try and move inside the state courts. But in this case, it's going to be all federal courts all the way.
0: Well, wait a second. Just to clarify, why couldn't they avoid the federal courts and go to the state courts, regardless of where the federal constitution is on this? If they think that the state constitution itself gives gives protection sufficient to strike down this particular law, why would they have to go to federal court? They could just defend it in state court.
1: Well, they will try to defend it in state court, but somebody will remove it into federal court, and then the supremacy clause will come into issue.
0: Well, only, is I- only if the plaintiffs, I think, uh, raise the federal the federal question, right?
1: Well, somebody's going to raise these federal questions. If a state court basically upholds this particular statute uh, and then and ignores Roe v. Wade, I could assure you the number of litigators on the other side who will make a beeline for a declaratory judgment to something in federal court will, I think, be very, very large. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. These cases, the statutes are put into place. Uh, the challengers could pick the forum. They're all going to pick the federal forum in which to do it. Um, and I think, in effect, Uh, They're going to lose. The strategy that they're having is they want to lose because they think that the Supreme Court will then take it. I hope the Supreme Court does not take this on the grounds that I'm more concerned at this particular point about political equilibrium. Now, mind you, one of the reasons I'm doing this or take this is I think their position is too extreme. I would perhaps have a bit more sympathy for them if what they were trying to do was to get a position which was more in line with what I believe in, attacking abortion at will and then allowing for all these other kinds of uh, situations. But that at least particularly with respect to the um, the Alabama statute is not what's happening in this particular case. And so I think that the, the forum issues are going to all end up – right up to the United States Supreme Court. This is not going to be like the situation in Mount Laurel or in Serrano and Priest, where you can't get state court creations of new constitutional rights. The other version of this, of course, was that it was state courts that struck down prohibitions on gay marriage long before those things were attacked in federal courts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that actually got a lot of traction. And then it provoked all sorts of very strong reactions in different kinds of states by way of legislation. And then, After that, it turned out that the federal courts got involved or what you did is you have state courts declaring their own state statutes unconstitutional like Proposition 8. Um, And I think that those maneuvers were kind of difficult. Obergefell succeeded because there was nobody who was in a strong enough position uh, to want to overturn this, even in states which by and large were against gay marriage. I think it's clear to say there was a significant majority in all these states that were in favor of it. And if you want to get a legislative solution, you have to have a substantial supermajority in order to upset the status quo ante. And you just don't have that with Obergefell.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about the politics in a second, but just on that one tactical point, because it's sort of the the strategy of the stuff really fascinates me. I think you're right. The moment that a state lawsuit under the state constitution is lost, um, there would be a race to the federal courthouse door. But in a sense, that gives – Uh, the groups that would want to challenge these laws, an advantage, right? They're two two bites at the apple. They can litigate the state claims, and then if they end up losing before the state Supreme Court under state law, well then somebody else can bring uh, a lawsuit challenging the the state law in federal court under the federal constitution Mm -hmm. and probably be free of all sorts of, of the preclusion issues that would otherwise dog the original plaintiffs. The problem, of course, is that Nobody has a monopoly on the litigation strategy. And so I think it is inevitable that somebody who wants to challenge the state law right away will just go to federal court. Oh, there's no
1: question. Yeah. And by the way, race judicator is not an issue in this case. You just get a fresh plaintiff. Right. There are millions of people out there who are willing to join into these cases. So you can always get the option to start over. And I think what's going to happen is we'll see the way the cases go. With Obergefell, the moment there was a conflict of, uh, between the circuits because the Sixth Circuit through Jeff Sutton said, you know, this stuff is not mandated by the Constitution, that's when the Supreme Court moved in. But this would have never been a Supreme Court issue if it had turned out that 11 or 12 circuits had all come out the same way.
0: Yeah, yeah the, On the politics of this, um, I really do think, or at least I worry, that these efforts by Georgia and Alabama will, will actually set back um, the pro-life cause rather than advance it, they'll be enjoying, the, the laws will be enjoined right away. They won't actually um, decrease abortion in the short run. They'll help amplify or energize the, the political side, the, the opposition. It's interesting, you know, for the last few years or more, I'd say the pro-life side has had a string of victories, whether it's increases in technology, that have made early-stage pregnancies much more sort of salient and compelling and I think culturally help to dissuade um, women from from having abortions. Um, Sort of when when they see the images themselves, they're, you know, they're less likely to go forward with an abortion. Yes. and then you've had some some astonishing statements, including the one by my own governor here in Virginia, Governor Northam, uh, who was you know last seen in, in in old blackface photos, and then was out giving interviews, you know, suggesting that he's open minded on the question of whether babies can be aborted even after they're born. Um, you've seen Is one that- after another loss um, or, or gain by by the pro life political cause. And so I think it's un- I think it's unfortunate that what we're going to see now is probably a big step back in the political and cultural debates which I think will be ultimately decisive.
1: Yes, I believe in the end this will galvanize the left more than the yeah. right.
0: So let's because, talk about us
1: Oh, go ahead, go ahead. That's no, that's enough though. So, I mean, uh, these people are not very astute.
0: Let's um let's 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 change the subject completely and um go back. I don't know if you heard heard about this uh, Richard but President Trump is under investigation. No. Yeah, it's true, it's true. I saw this in the news. Um, two big developments since we last spoke. One is uh former White House counsel Don McGahn defied a subpoena from the House Judiciary Committee, refused to testify, and now there are uh you know arguments um from from both sides over whether the president's top advisors and top former advisors are immune to, from subpoenas to testify before Congress. And we had a, a decision out of the U.S. District Court here in Washington in which a federal judge, Judge Mehta, uh denied a request by, the, by President Trump uh, to block uh, one of his former, I think it was a former bank, uh, financial advisors, Mazar's LLP, from complying with a House committee subpoena. So you have the Trump administration, you have the Trump White House and with the backing of the justice department saying that the president's top advisors are immune from testimony and you have president trump unsuccessfully so far trying to block um private sector um, entities from complying with subpoenas. What do you make of all this so far?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, it's pretty clear that many people out there do not like Donald Trump. As I've always said, I will strongly disagree with many of his policies on things like trade and immigration, but that has nothing to do with the legal position with respect to these issues. Uh, Let's start with the McGann case. Um, it is quite clear that under the narrowest conception of executive privilege, talking to the president about key issues is something which is generally privileged. There might be a question in some of these cases as to whether the privilege has been waived. I gather McGahn um, did talk to our Robert Mueller for a very long time and that they did submit many, many documents that he had prepared. I think the technical legal position is if it's inside the executive branch, it's not a waiver with respect to Congress. And I think if you say I'm giving it for this purpose but not for others, that that condition on the waiver will probably work given the separation of powers between the House and the rest of the government. So the second question then is if you've got somebody like McGahn who's no longer in office and no longer giving confidences, does the executive privilege apply? I think the answer to that is absolutely clear. If you're a lawyer in ordinary business and there's an attorney-client privilege with your firm, you resign from the firm. The privilege continues to stay with you so long as the matter is one that is subject to privilege. Otherwise, the attorney-client privilege in large cases would be totally worthless as people resign and get from out from under it. So I think they will subpoena him. And my guess is Uh, the Democrats have somewhat of a chance of winning on the waiver issue, no chance of winning on the grounds that executive privilege doesn't apply if the waiver is not out. On the other case, I mean, I basically – I don't care one way or another about Trump's returns uh, on the tax issues, but other people clearly do. I think he should have made these things voluntary at some point. I don't know whether he's hiding all the money that he made or hiding the fact that he lost so much money. It's extremely difficult when you have a guy in real estate tax shelters to know what the actual thing means, because a lot of these are paper losses and gains are reflecting the confusion and antecedent transactions. Uh, But I do think it is totally inappropriate for, for example, the New York state to vote that these things should be revealed. I think it's got to be a federal question and they have to be bound on that. And I also think that the way in which the subpoena was issued was, again, wholly improper. Let me tell you what I think the right process is. Um, You come there and you say, look, we want to do this. The first thing is, okay, you want to do this to investigate something. What are you trying to investigate and to prove? And this is not a case where they're trying to talk about Well, we want to get after this kind of tax shelter to see how it goes. It's not a case where they're trying to talk about, oh, there's this kind of criminal income that is being concealed. This is, as best I can say, is just simply what Elijah Cummings has said. I'd like to see everything that the president has so I can figure out legislation to frustrate him or additional attacks or to use it with respect to impeachment. And so I think it's overbroad. The second thing, of course, is there's no protection against this information being given and leaked. So the correct way to do this, if you're going to do it at all, is to say, look, they've got interest in Congress. They don't have to wait for impeachment to get it. But what we're going to do is we're going to first do what we do in any discovery procedure. We narrow what it is that you can get by you telling us the documents that are most salient and most important. And then we subject them to a protective order so that they can only be seen by certain numbers of people. It is very clear that what the Democrats want to do is to get all this information, have it go out to 535 people in Congress and God knows how many congressional aides, and then someone will leak it and nobody will be able to chase it. That's just not the way in which these things ought to be done. And I think the judge meter who did this should be scolded uh, because what he did not do is to exercise the traditional controls over the scope and the conditions under which a subpoena are granted.
0: So, to get back to the, the McGann issue i 'm actually uh, less convinced that McGann could have voluntarily testified uh, or i 'm not convinced that he would have been barred from testifying if he 'd wanted to uh, he 's a former advisor it 's true that former lawyers for a client uh, a private client mm-hmm. are, are limited in what they can they can mm-hmm. say even after the representation mm-hmm. ends. But that really is a matter of state law and and state state rules. I don't think that the federal um, privilege for presidents and his top advisors is quite so developed. Um, I don't think there's a categorical rule that says former advisors must not testify. I think I actually I think the better argument would have been McGahn could have testified if he wanted to. Here he chose to um, to comply with the president's order. Not to testify, and I think the president's position was well supported on all the reasons why McGahn couldn't be compelled to testify, and, and this is put in the um, the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel memo, which I think was very well done. Um, so I think that was pretty. I think that was a pretty straightforward one. I was amused by Jerry Nadler's uh, just categorical assertion that everybody must always comply with congressional subpoenas. It's it's self, It's it's on its face um, absurd. It's absurd. Um, I will say. About this waiver argument, I think the waiver argument actually reveals more than it was intended to reveal. I, I agree with, with your earlier suggestion, the Justice Department's suggestion, that that McGahn's communications with another part of the executive branch do not waive the privilege the president and his top advisors have against the other branch of government here at issue Congress. Um, I think it's totally different. And I think that um, when the House and the House Judiciary Committee arguing that the, mm-hmm. the privilege has been waived, really reveals um their utter failure to recognize the difference between the Mueller investigation and a congressional investigation. I think they've pretty clearly forgotten, or they don't want to recognize, Mm -hmm. that the Mueller investigation was a Justice Department investigation of the executive branch itself. This is exactly the kind of thing I think, I mean, you and I, we've no need to relitigate this, but you know my position. I think the Mueller investigation was a good thing, and it was good for the executive branch to police itself. I've been saying from the very beginning of 2017, it was important for the administration's own sake that it police itself. And so that's what the Mueller investigation was. Yeah, he had a measure of independence under the special counsel regulations, but not total independence. He was part of the Justice Department, bound by Justice Department rules, and and so on. The House Democrats who now think that Mueller was just sort of their independent fact finder, and that he should answer to them, and that somehow he stands separate from the presidency the way that Congress does, I think really it reflects the way that Congress itself has totally forgotten its own powers and duties as a separate branch of government. It's just another example of how Congress really wanted to outsource a lot of this to prosecutors. Really failing to remember that prosecutors are an executive branch function, not a legislative branch function, and that's a difference that actually means something. And I'm also—I'll just add—I'm also amused that now, in response to the McGahn refusing to comply with the subpoena, um, House Democrats next term will be to some random federal district court judge—not random. I suppose they'll pick one that they think they'll in a court that they hope is hospitable. Um, in DC, I guess I guess it'll, I guess it'll be DC one. It? It'll be the U.S. District Court, but they'll 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 go hat in hand to some federal trial judge and say, "We, the first branch of Congress, here at you know, ask that you tell the President of the United States what to do." I think it it's really shows how shrunken and desiccated and kind of pathetic Congress's own self-conception is when it goes to when, – when Congress institutionally goes to some federal trial judge trying to sort out this sort of profound constitutional dispute between the Congress and the president.
1: Well, I agree with that. Um, I would go even one step further. Uh, I did a recent piece on who, which talked about the difference between United States versus Nixon and and the current situation. And, you know, they're very profound. And one of the points was, of course, that the special prosecutor by Congress was given explicit independence from the president under statute. And so it was said that given that statute, you can't treat this as an interbranch dispute. In this particular case, Congress had basically passed the legislation dealing with the special prosecutor, and his functions are much more circumscribed. Uh, They ought to simply recommend whether or not you decide to find sufficient evidence to prosecute full stop. Uh, The exoneration, non-exoneration was not part of his charge, and it went beyond it and created all sorts of difficulty. So in that case, Congress has already spoken as a collective body, saying, in effect, that everything that happens with Mueller is under the exclusive control of the DOJ. And now what they're trying to do that is to unilaterally reverse it. I have to say, I have been just horribly disappointed in Jerry Nadler. I, I think what has happened is he himself has become a complete political hack. And what he does is he calls everybody who disagrees with him a hack. Uh, there was a very powerful memo written to him by Pat alone, I guess he's White House counsel or something or other, which really just showed how much flexibility the administration had shown throughout this process and how utterly rigid it turns out that uh, Nadler has been. I am not aware in the three or four months or the last... I guess three or four weeks, of a single concession coming from the Democrats on the House committee about the way in which this thing ought to be undertaken. So they've taken the intransigent position, and I think given all of that, it is extremely difficult for them to accept the administration to simply fold. Fast and furious, it took, I think, 255 days before there was a contempt citation. These guys were wielding it when they were 19 days in, having not made a single concession of their own.
0: Hey, b- b- by the way, I do want to say really quickly, um, having bashed on Nadler and the House Democrats for their conduct so far and the fact that they might go to court, I do want to back up and say on this other case about Mazar's, which I got it wrong earlier. It's, it's the accounting firm, not financial advisors. Okay. Um, I look at, at President Trump's complaint, and I find it utterly unconvincing. Uh, President Trump's claim for relief ultimately is that the the, the, the House subpoena for his financial records is is invalid and unenforceable because, quote, it has no legitimate legislative purpose. I don't think that's right at all. Congress has legislative purposes beyond just legislation. But first (laughs) of all, Congress could choose to legislate on this question of of the the financial um, records of a president. But In any event, legislation isn't the only thing Congress does. Congress has constitutional powers to impeach. I hope they don't wield them here, but the fact is that is itself a legitimate legislative purpose. Uh, The fact that President Trump doesn't want his financial advisors, former financial advisors perhaps, to to comply with a congressional subpoena seems totally misguided. President Trump is the president of the United States. He should fight this out politically politically. And going to some federal judge, again, hat in hand, asking some random federal trial judge to get in the middle of this dispute between Congress and the president, and really, I think, misstating the scope of Congress's powers here, I think, is beneath the dignity of the president. So here, as with so many things we've seen last year, I say a pox on both of their houses, and I think the president and the the House's uh, upcoming use of federal courts in the, these these political disputes, I think, is one of the more regrettable features of modern political and governmental life.
1: Well, so I, look, Here's the point at which I think we disagree. I believe that there is no categorical defense with respect to this subpoena, but I do think protective orders and limiting orders are perfectly appropriate in this particular case, uh, so that what you do is you get a measured form of release. I, I think that there's a danger of overbreath. I think the general rules about oppression and excessive stuff would apply to a congressional subpoena as much to anyone else, and I think that protective orders are some much a part of the overall culture with respect to subpoenas that it cannot be ignored here. So I think that Trump should lose on the categorical side, uh, but I think that the judge went over the top when in terms of the breadth that he conceded, I suspect this is going to be appealed at some particular level. and. Uh, once it 's going to appeal it 's going to delay things uh, you know the the other thing I think of which is behind all of this is both you and I believe in the end it is perfectly appropriate for people to want to know what it was that a president financially. And so we don't regard this request as simply being outlandish. I mean, I think better of people who reveal their tax returns than people who don't reveal their tax returns when they're running to public office. And so I think you're right on that. But I do think in effect that I think the Democrats have overplayed their hand, notwithstanding the fact that I think they actually have a respectable hand in this particular case. We'll see how it plays out. Um, and so on that one, I agree half with you. I think that there should have been some subpoena granted, but I do think that it should have been qualified in a way which apparently it was not.
0: Since I, I started the podcast by by mentioning your your great piece and defining ideas, I guess I'll, I'll advertise my own work for a moment and say it's that my thoughts. My, well, my thoughts on the um, on the subpoena fight with McGann, I spelled them out recently at, at commentary Commentary Magazine's website. Uh, one last thing, Richard, a couple of times on the podcast, you've referred back to the old Lochner case. Yes. Uh, as it happens, I reviewed uh, the new biography of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Um, by author Stephen Budiansky. It comes out – the book comes out very, very soon, and I think my review in The Wall Street Journal comes out in the next couple of days, perhaps even before our podcast is released. Uh, do we have We have 30 seconds left. Do you have any thoughts on Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr.?
1: Well, I always thought that his dissent in Lochner had two characteristics. It was one of the most elegant uh, opinions and powerful opinions ever written. Uh, But on the other hand, every one of its particulars, when you start looking at him, I thought that he was actually wrong. I mean, this is a case not like the post office. That's funding public goods. Uh, In Lochner, it was a restriction of voluntary contract between two private parties. Uh, I don't think that a general proposition which says that we try to afford all individuals like liberty with everybody else is a shibboleth. With. I think it's one of the foundations of Western civilization. I think, in effect, that when you say that this gen- legislation can be justified on the score of health, um, it seems to me that that was wrong. I think that the Peckham analysis was stronger on that. Uh, when he wrote that you know, Mister you know, the Constitution does not en- enact Mr. Herbert's sense of social statics, uh, the power of the sentence lies in the fact that nobody knows what social statics are. Uh, but if the question is whether or not laissez-faire individualism was part of the Constitution, with all of its police power limitations. I think that Holmes was clearly wrong. And so I regard that opinion as much inferior to his other opinion, uh, the one where he sort of defends the freedom of speech, and Abrams' famous dissent in that particular case, um, was saying, you know, in the Constitution, we really do have to have some degree of deference with respect to speech in order to have adequate public kind of debate. And he says that's the risk on which all country has been done. So I am not a fan of his Lochner opinion. Uh, As for Holmes himself, it's a complete pastiche on some of his stuff. You know, it turns out this guy was very sophisticated on things like antitrust and rate regulation, which he's hardly known about before, and some of his Areas like with property rights and in the Mahan case, it's an intellectual jumble. I think it was clearly wrong on the question of whether or not there's a general set of principles of common law. It goes on and on. <laughs> but right, if you right. want, We could read the book, get, get me to read it sometime, and then we can have a Holmes discussion um, and we can see where we agree or disagree reasonably or not.
0: I think I think I might be one step more favorable towards Holmes overall than you, but probably just one. In reading the book, by the way, I did learn something, kind of a little historic curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, his father, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., was the famous writer yeah. and poet yeah. and author of um, the poem Old Ironsides, yeah. which, uh, which I didn't realize was how Holmes Sr. exploded into public popularity, which was in writing that particular poem. In the poem, 1830s. Right, which saved the USS Constitution from ruin. I didn't realize that it that, that was his first step on the sort of literary stage yeah. was to write this poem that saved the USS Constitution, which then of course is the greatest irony of all, that one, one Holmes became famous by saving a constitution and the other Holmes became famous by refusing to do anything to save it.
1: Well, so, I mean, he was like that. By the way, the Holmes never quite liked his father. He wrote a famous essay in the 1860s during the Civil War called My Hunt for the Captain, yeah. when Holmes had been ruined multiple times. And young Oliver Wendell Holmes always thought that this was kind of an invasion of privacy, um, even though it attracted a great deal of attention. Because Holmes was a very gallant soldier who had been wounded three or so times, gets out of the service in 1864, gets graduates from the Harvard Law School in 1866, and the rest is history
0: of a lion i quote about that in the in the review uh is at home said at one point my dad just my father just got my back up which uh i suppose is something that any son could say about a father from time to time mm-hmm. but in any sense or, any, or in any event richard uh i've enjoyed this conversation as always and i look forward to our next one um uh, me too well thank you all listeners for joining us and we'll be back again soon
1: this podcast has
0: been a production of the hoover institution